This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, that's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Zotanya Sujon about her new book, The Social Media Age. Um, So welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Um, It's a pleasure to have you. You've written um, an incredibly kind of timely book um, that, that captures... Um, so much of, I guess, the kind of, you know, contemporary um, problem, but also maybe the kind of contemporary good sides, is, is that the right word, of um, the world in which we live, mediated through, as the book describes, um, this phenomenon of, of social media. And I, I suppose the place to start with the book is, is a really kind of deceptively simple question, which is, well, what are social media and that that's obviously you know a simple but huge question and i was quite struck um in the in the first chapter by the way you tried to introduce a kind of a couple of themes to answer that um and a couple of examples um and you've got stuff like um how social media is about kind of surveillance and data thinking about the social credit system in china but then how social media is about kind of community and making connections um, with the example of, of pokemon go so maybe a kind of a slightly easier question to answer is is what do those two examples tell us about how we define and understand social media uh, i mean thank you i think that's a, a really good question and um, although, as you said, you know, what our social media seems like a simple question, it's really, really, really not. And I mean, the, the story behind why I wanted to start with a, a descriptive chapter, you know, which identified themes rather than definitions, is I, I spent a long time, um, you know, months and months, and I, I've been studying social media for um a long time and prior to social media, participatory media uh, and uh, digital technologies. So you'd think it would be simple, but there's a lot of changing definitions and then, you know, arguments about what that definition is. So in the pursuit for, you know, a, a comprehensive and all-consuming kind of perfect definition, I, I, I got a little bit bored. <laughs> I was like, um, in some ways, kind of tired myself out trying to think of the, the perfect definition. And I also realized that because social media are changing um, so exponentially and from year to year and there's new features and there's apps within apps and social media within social media and you know all of these things that actually having one definition isn't necessarily helpful um, so to kind of spread out to, to, to lay the territory to understand that context I thought what was really useful was just to identify some of the 
often oppositional themes, um, you know, data and surveillance. And with data, we get data valence, we get data extraction, we get exploitation um, in community and connection. And I think that often when it comes to research on social media, there tends to be uh, um, an alignment with one or the other. Um, and I wanted to counter that because I think that, you know, no matter what your lens is, data and surveillance are absolutely um founding starting points for thinking about what social media do um, and what they are. But so is at the same time and often in the same breath, community and, community and connection. Um, so th- that was what I was trying to, to illustrate there. And I mean, China's social credit systems, and in particular, I think um, I looked at a couple of um, apps, which are pilots, because there is no one coordinated national um, social credit system. There's a series of pilots which um, operate independently um, uh, through the approval of the, the Bank of China. Um, so I looked at particularly WeChat Payment Score and Zima or Sesame Credit, which are um, opt-in social credit systems. Um, and I thought they were just really interesting um, apps. And it's a really interesting context because there's so much going on there. And the the specter of surveillance is so um so clear that it just it, it almost allows us to look through a magnifying glass at some of the concerns and issues around data valence and surveillance. Um, so, in brief, what what they they do for anyone who might not be familiar with them is they you know link together national um, identity, uh, you know, uh, identity numbers, you know, passports, tax data, all that sort of stuff, with uh, social media behavior through and your financial information. And this is done in through a, a kind of gamified app. When I've talked to um, Chinese users, one of the, they're often surprised and perhaps taken aback by the surveillance concerns because they're like, well, it's fun and it's social and it's, it's, there's all these rewards you get when you use it. So there's, there's an interesting framing there. Sorry, just as a, as a note of context, that little squeak, I, I do have a dog in the background. So we, <laughs> as we, as a, as I talk, um, so the the thing that's um, interesting, I guess, about these apps is one, they're about not just surveilling behavior, but about bringing together a whole um, aggregate of different kinds of data to build pictures about, you know, what people are doing. Um, and then their behavior can be monitored and rewarded or blacklisted. And there's an, a whole uh, range of accounts, um, I think, in, in the press, which document the kind of red lists and blacklists, which um, these systems, um, these apps have developed. You know, so for example, if you get a, over a certain uh, number of points, you can get fees um, waived in terms of, you know, renting properties. You can be fast tracked in terms of travel, and if you're blacklisted, you can have, you know, you will not be able to buy uh, train tickets, for example. So that, I guess, one of the things that is so powerful about these um, opt-in social credit apps is that the potential use of data, particularly in different national systems or an authoritarian political system, you know, is is frightening, um, uh, especially if, it, if it's going to be misused. I do feel it's really important to say that, you know, it is important to think very carefully about these apps. A lot of Chinese scholars have pointed to techno-orientalism and, you know, racism and how it is that these technologies and, and the Chinese context is understood. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a very important point. You know, what we see with these um, 
apps are actually a lot of very similar apps and similar um, types of systems in the US and in Germany and Europe. You know, for example, there's uh, ones which are m- much less known, such as FICO, which is a social credit system based in Silicon Valley. Um, and it does all sorts of consumer analysis, including debt recovery. There's, you know, um, Lodex uh, in the Netherlands, there's Shufa, all of these things uh, bring together social credit. Um, in ways that link social data with financial and other kinds of, you know, government-held data. Um, so it's certainly not just the Chinese context. However, they all highlight the power of surveillance and data valence in terms of monitoring behavior. At the very other um, realm, or what seems like the other uh, end of the spectrum, um, in opposition to uh, data valence, we get you know, Pokemon Go, which might not typically be what we think of when we think of social media, but it is, you know, they are networked. It is about connecting. It is gamified. So people who play Pokemon Go, um, you know, venture out into the world. And, and I think when uh, Pokemon Go was first released as a game, people, you know, were... It, it was celebrated in the press. People are leaving and walking. They're getting exercises. They're making connections with people. They hadn't anticipated. So it was also seemed to highlight some of the ways in which, you know, real connection and real communities um, are built around sharing of interests uh, and that sort of digital connection. Um, somewhat, perhaps ironically, you know, Pokemon Go is a is a Google um, platform, a Google app, and they similarly um, use the game to collect, you know, all sorts of information uh, for um, Google Earth. Uh, and, you know, so there's a lot of geodata which is collected. So there's another side of that community and connection um, that we see in Pokemon Go, which links back, I think, to um, the data and surveillance, which is highlighted in uh, the, the, the two apps, which are part of, you know, the, the pilot for China's social credit systems. I mean, if, if they're like two sort of contemporary examples of community and... Uh, surveillance to to pick out two of the the kind of four themes that an, animate the um, front end of the book. Where have they kind of? I suppose where have they come from? Could, could you sort of talk through how they've ended up at a moment where even when we're describing the kind of fun of Pokemon Go, we're talking quite critically about um, you know kind of data gathering practices, and even where you know we're talking quite critically about. Um, social credit systems, whether in China or um, elsewhere in, in the US or, or in continental Europe, we, you know, we're also talking about building community and people connecting and, you know, people kind of um, enjoying the gamified elements. And, and, and what's the, I guess, the kind of the story of the sort of prehistory of social media to our, you know, more critical moments? Um, thanks. I mean, I think that's a, a really, really important question. Uh, and that is something that I take up in, in directly in chapter two. Um, and as a bit of context for that, I think it is really important to know where things come from. Um, for anyone who's, you know, talked about social media with others or, or any, you know, um, new technologies, often whenever there is a new innovation, people will say, oh, it's brand new. It's never existed before. And in my experience, I think with students, particularly um, with undergraduate students, you know, they're like, oh, I want to look at Clubhouse. It's never existed before. It's brand new. There's nothing else I could possibly look at that will help me understand Clubhouse. And, you know, that can be kind of frustrating, I think, um, because, yes, it's important to understand innovation. However, um, Pokemon Go, um, social credit systems, uh, you know, um, 
Jima credit, all of these things do have histories and social media does come from somewhere. It didn't just um, emerge out of nowhere. So in, in chapter two, I argue um, in part to kind of develop um, historical precedents, um, but also to think about social media as part of our media ecosystem, as a landscape for um, so interpersonal interaction and you know public conversation. It's in, and I think that's really important because although each platform is very different, each app or um, uh, social media site is very different. There's also some commonalities. So there was those two reasons. Um, and so what I argued actually is that we we uh, drawing from life cycle models. So I looked at the product life cycle, the knowledge life cycle. Um, the life cycle for technological change uh, and also for um, technology. And all of these have sort of common um, common points, uh, which I you know, brought together and argued that there's actually four stages when we look at where does that social media have come from. I think you could probably say there's more or, you know, they, they could be different, but I think that these four stages are actually really effective um, for understanding that question, where is it that these um, apps and social media sites come from? So the first of these, uh, I argue, in terms of social media, and this is not the web, but this is not um, networks, this is just social media, there's a prehistory which we can begin with um, in the 1980s. And here we get, you know, the the the, um, the basics of the, the internet, ARPANET, Usenet, bulletin board systems, we get email, um, and what we see here is that there's some technological innovations which are not uh, social media, but they made possible um, social media to develop. We also get sort of um, concepts uh, where, you know, scholarship and um, researchers are thinking about how to make sense of these technologies, things like virtual communities, public communication, computer supported collaborative work. And, you know, for me, that relationship between how we understand these technologies and um, what these technologies enable is also really important. So in this prehistory, and um, one word I really like to help uh, understand this prehistory is ferment. You know, this is where it is that innovations were happening to charge, to develop, to um, allow social media to take root. And I, I think that that's actually a, a very useful way of looking at it. The second stage is about the early development. And this is where you begin to see um, social media look a little bit like what it looks like. So other technological um, innovations at this time was, was groupware, um, which was kind of a word used for things like, um, you know, technologies that allowed you to work together. Uh, I think Lotus Notes was one. We see the emergence of the World Wide Web. So the time frame is the 1990s to, and I've put it to 2006, and there's a specific reason for that. Um, although it would, you know, yeah, uh, which we'll come to in a moment. Peer-to-peer -peer networks, um, uh, things, um, um yeah, uh, which which were really important and really key to how it is that social media were to be able to develop social software, which was sort of one of the places where groupware went, and also actual social networking sites like Six Degrees um, and MySpace and Facebook, as well, blogging, which has got another uh, huge impact in how it is that we connect. Um, 
And then the reason why I thought the 2006-2007 moment actually marks two different stages is that there were a number of things that happened in 2007. So in this stage, I say this is stage three, which marks the consolidation and growth of social media. Um, And probably the two major things are platformization. We see the emergence of um, Facebook Connect which we uh, know now as Facebook login, uh, which allows, and this happens with Google and this happens with a number of other sites. You can log into um, one site somewhere else on the net through um, you know, your social account. So that's one, and that marks the extension of sites across the web. And that's a really huge technological innovation. The second one is the launch of the iPhone. And what this meant is that uh, social media all of a sudden became um, you know, linked to mobile networks. Facebook went mobile first as a company. So its strategy completely changed and adapted to um, the affordances and capacities of the iPhone. Uh, And this also led to the development of apps. So these were really, really big technological changes, which marked um, a shift away from sort of early development to really um, consolidating the capacities of social technologies. And from here we see, you know, huge um, growth. And I would say um, at this point that the fourth stage, which is what we're in now, um, is about maturation and, a, and and the more critical turn. And I've called it the more critical turn because I think we are seeing um, many more works emerge which really question the meaning, the consequences, and the aims of social media in, in critical ways. Um, but the other thing that we, we also see is, is massification. You know, Facebook um, has over 2 billion users, and we see extension platforms. We see the, the closing out of, um, you know, the, the, the strangling of competitors, um, as came clear in the Cambridge Analytica, um, as, a, as the results of the Cambridge Analytica case. Um, the advantage as well is this, increased um, or this more critical turn, we also see a space in policy and regulation where social media platforms and big tech companies are coming under fire for um, antitrust and and um, monopolization. So that's where it is that I think we are now. Um, I guess just one final comment um, on this. And and now that I'm thinking, Dave, I'm going back to the question, you know, where did Pokemon go? And Jima uh, credit and other sorts of, you know, social credit systems come from, um, you know, I think it's complicated and we could probably trace back these particular technologies in different ways. But I think they're also part of a larger landscape. And this staged model helps us understand that that larger landscape. Um, as a as a just a final point, one of the things I learned from writing this chapter, which I thought was really quite interesting, is the gap between sort of technological innovation and how it is that we're able to think about these changes. Um, so, you know, it was, you know, social media, for example, wasn't used as a term in Ofcom until 2008, um, even though it had been something that was in the press and in the news and used uh, you know, in, in in technology communications. So there's there's something quite interesting there, I think, um, which is important for when we think about where we are in terms of criticality and how we can get there um, more quickly. I mean, you, you mentioned lots and lots of um, kind of different key developments and 
uh, key players in the um, in the story. And, and the middle part of the book, um, I guess, tries to, to map out some more of that where we are now territory. And, and I suppose one thing you flagged, particularly with um, you know giving quite quite a bit of attention to Facebook, there is the rise of um, a social media landscape that's dominated by platforms, and you know as part of a kind of broader um, sort of new infrastructure of the internet that is um, the social media infrastructure as much as it is the kind of world wide web infrastructure. And it'd probably be useful to kind of talk through, um, I, I suppose, the kind of the infrastructure provided by platforms and the way they kind of shape what we consider to be both the social, but also how platforms characterize the social media age. That's a, that's a, that's a very interesting question. And um, I am certainly, you know, of the camp that infrastructure matters. It matters where our, you know, cables and wires and where buildings structures come from. Um, and there's a, some, some amazing work in this area. Um, so in terms of, you know, social media, one of the things that uh, I think is interesting is if you look at, you know, the undersea cable networks. Uh, and in the book, there is a picture of them. And it is something you can find by um, looking at telegeography, I believe. I can share a link if that's um, of interest. And what it shows is, you know, all of the undersea cable networks that carry the bits and the information which make up the internet. Um, interestingly, with platformization, you get the extension of, you know, links and sites of, you know, Google and Facebook and, and other um, uh, social technologies. But when you look at the cables, one of the things that we see is that they're also, you know, owned and maintained and contributed to by these, these companies. So what this means is that when we look at infrastructure, both at the top of the web and then when you look at the material, um, material um, matter which makes it up, it's, you know, the, the, there's uh, alignment between um, ownership um, so I think that's something that's really key in terms of how it is that we understand not just what social media do as users, um, but what they do uh, uh, in, you know, in, in terms of um, their infrastructure. And the other component of that, of course, is like, you know, data centers, um, where it is that they're located and what that means, I think, you know, not just for use, but also for regulation. Um, uh, and the, the the broader implications of that does that does that answer your question, Dave? No, that that's perfect, and it, and it sort of sets up, I suppose, um, a discussion of. Um, I mean, so far we've been talking really about the kind of the media bits of, of social media. I'd, I'd say whether it's you know kind of platforms or, or programs, um, but less so the kind of social. And again, I mean, what one of the things that's happened with things like because as you you know gestured towards their critical infrastructure studies questions about well you know where are the platforms based how are they regulated what kind of laws do they operate under you know etc etc is you kind of miss the sort of the social bits and the book has got a range of of, of different kind of um maybe cultural case studies that it that it uses and one re- really obvious one which, which is less kind of facebook and more twitter is um black lives matter and it's it struck me that that was um something that the book uses to kind of say well look social media have got a kind of um a promise of being participatory 
as much as we need to be critical of, you know, whose voices are represented, who's a marginalized, who gets to kind of be involved. And, and I wonder how you use the kind of hashtag Black Lives Matter as a, as a case study in the kind of the social and participatory, participatory elements of social media. I mean, Black Lives Matter is, is actually a, a really um, amazing and positive case of how it is that social media can, uh, you know, really make visible um, all sorts of voices which haven't been heard um, or have been, you know, not heard as much as they should be. Um, so I, I think that, you know, one of the things that's that's quite interesting when you look about, the, you know, look at Black Lives Matter, when it first emerged, it was, you know, barely noted on Twitter. Um, and I think although Twitter is perhaps one of the primary sites um, where Black Lives Matter has been documented, it is something that has, you know, gone across other um, sites, including, you know, web spaces and including um, newsletters and emails and all sorts of things, which, you know, are difficult to bring into the story, but they're, they're absolutely present. And again, that's sort of that landscape um, element. Um, but, you know, when it first emerged in 2013 in response to the uh, acquittal of Trayvon Martin's uh, racist murderer, you know, it was quite quiet on Twitter. There wasn't, you know, massive amounts of um, activity. However, that impact was accumulative. And as more cases were documented, as more, um, uh, uh, as, as the hashtag was contributed to over time, um, it amplified not just uh, the voices of people who were angry about systemic racism, but also about voices which had not been picked up by mainstream media or that had been um, in some ways suppressed by, you know, police and um, by racism, uh, not just in the States, but globally. Uh, so in that sense, you know, Black Lives Matter is a really excellent example of how we can see social media amplifying voices and enabling greater participation. It, it provides more opportunities to make visible injustices that would otherwise not have been recognized. Um, so I think that that's, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great example for that. Um, and I think it did enable all sorts of people to come together and not just to come together, but to see other people who were going through the same um, anger and frustration and, uh, you know, um, you know, tragic response to these horrible continuing injustices. So, it, so I think this was, um, really valuable in that way. And, and when we look at social and political movements, it's not just black, black lives matter. We can see this in other instances as well. Um, interestingly, you know, for example, in Egypt, uh, in the 2011, uh, revolution, one of the things that, um, some researchers have noted is that it was most valuable. Twitter was most valuable and to some extent, Facebook in connecting what was happening in Egypt to, um, uh, Western journalists and to global journalism. So again, that making visible in a wider um, arena, that was the thing that was so powerful in terms of participation um, and in terms of, you know, change. Uh, the other question, of course, and it would be interesting to hear what you think on this, Dave, is that when we think about critically about participation, um, although there's some, you know, really excellent uh, examples of how social media can amplify voices and connect people, there's also many questions around what it is that participation really means. And if, you know, and, and this is something that I think is challenged when we look at who it is that generally has access, who has reach um, and scope and scale using social media, um, which often comes back to 
you know, stories about the usual suspects and those who have more political and economic power. I mean, there's a question that goes even further beyond that and, and the book engages with, which is around, well, actually, you know, these moments of great social hope and, and, and social uh, positive social change are still dependent on platforms. And I mean, you know, we've seen like literally over the last couple of weeks um, how various key platforms have, you know, switched on and switched off particular uh, hashtags and, and particular kind of, you know, critical um, discussions um, around the, the health crisis in, in particular nations. And and this question, I, I guess, is not just the sort of, you know, story of platforms, but but it's also a story of like, well, who owns you when you're in the world of social media? You know, even um, with kind of something like hashtag Black Lives Matter, there was still, I suppose, a kind of a, a compromise of using that hashtag and using that platform in a world where, you know, it was very difficult to stay private. You know, obviously there are debates about um, people's um, anonymity on, on things like like Twitter, Facebook, face the backlash when, when trying to kind of, I suppose, crack down on, on an anonymity. And then this question of, you know, who owns uh, your data and thus who owns you? And, and that question I, th- I think is really fascinating because it doesn't sort of completely invalidate the participatory promise. But I suppose one of the things you're trying to talk through in, in the later part of the book is the idea that you have to be aware that, you know, privacy is a contested um, and difficult terrain. Yeah, ab- absolutely. In fact, there's a whole chapter on that. And that that comes from um, research that I've done as well, um, looking at privacy uh, in sharing culture. And I think, you know, one of the things that's that's really important, and I mean, there's a lot there. So I, th- I think, l- let me, let me um, de- deconstruct this a little bit. So when we think about privacy and data ownership, I mean, quite clearly, terms and conditions, which many people don't read. Uh, in fact, I think it's the exception um, for people to read those, you know, it, it basically assigning away uh, your rights to your information and to your data, and also often granting access to, you know, um, to your computer or to your phone, to any files, photo albums, um, address books, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that that's that's a lot of information. Um, so so, and it's it's not possible to opt out. And I think as well, if we look at shadow profiles, which is the collect collection of data from social media users about non-users. So Dave, if you didn't have uh, a social media account, but I had your phone number and I logged into my social media account or opened a social media account, you know, I am giving away access to all of that information. And, you know, this is, this is common practice uh, in social media. And we've seen it not just in Facebook, but in LinkedIn, um, in Twitter, in um, all of the, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the, the sort of common business models. And that means that uh, through the collection of data about non-users, shadow profiles can be built. And if you or whoever has had data collected about them logs on, that data can then be linked up and the platform whatever that is, can say, look, do you know this person and this person? So in this sense, it's impossible to be private in how we might understand privacy as a right to be let alone, as a right to um, have control over uh, information. (coughs) And I think that there's sort of two, well, there's one major consequence of this, um, 
And before getting to that consequence, one of the things many people, including, you know, Mark Zuckerberg um, uh, and, you know, Jeff Bezos and many other big tech um, CEOs say is that, you know, privacy is dead. We don't need to think about it. People don't care about privacy. And that is, you know, based on my research and the, the reading I've done on that, absolutely not the case. People do care about privacy, but what they tend to care about most is interpersonal or social privacy, who, you know, what other social media users, what potential employers or current employers, what family, what, you know, their the, the people they know or might know might see. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is I think there's two reasons, and this has got to do with some of the consequences. One, when it comes to framing privacy, social media typically say, you have control, um, you have all the privacy you want, um, and that has nothing to do with intellectual property or data or any of that sort of stuff. You know, you can control this sort of thing. So I think that there's actually an active lie being promoted and perpetuated by social media com- companies where we're um, um, misled about what privacy means. Uh, and we're sort of misdirected continually from thinking about privacy and data. Um, uh, so I think that that's, that's, that's a problem. And I think that in terms of how to be private on social media or the internet, this is something that we need to do more work on, um, and that social media com- companies need to to uh, do more work on and make some actual policy changes um, around terms and conditions, but also around their practices and how it is that privacy is understood, um, and how it is privacy is presented. You know, they need to be much more responsible in respecting um, privacy and data rights. The other. Uh, element is that one of the things that we do see with, you know, studies with young people is that, you know, privacy is, is, a, is also a, you know, it's contextual, uh, you know, as, as, as Niesenbaum argues. So many people, you know, if, if you look at Finstagram, fake Instagrams or FicFox, take fake TikToks, people find ways um, to be private in public. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it, one, supports the idea that, yes, um, privacy is important, but it also shows that, you know, people are quite resourceful and resilient and figure out how they can um, connect with others in ways that they feel safe and secure. This is also something that's that's come out from my own research. You know, people talk about using codes or they talk about using back channels. Uh, so they'll, they'll, they'll post statuses or share um, material, which is encoded so only a small number of people will understand what it means, or they'll use back channels instead of, you know, public facing channels to communicate and connect. So, so I think we need to understand these things as working together uh, and not just as, you know, as different aspects of privacy, which cancel each other out because they're both very real uh, and very important for understanding, you know, what happens um, on social media and how it is people engage and understand, uh, you know, big things like data and privacy. I mean, those same themes are present in um, parts of the book that are talking about uh, dating, about, you know, influencer culture, um, through to things that, you know, um, are questions about, you know, can you actually be like authentic and be yourself really um, on um, platforms like like Instagram? And, and, And I mean, the book has got, so many examples and is you know incredibly rich far beyond the um the conversation that, that we've had 
and, and I wonder actually if the place to um, to, to wrap up might be a, a slightly kind of um, sort of cruel and unusual question, considering you've written such a you know a kind of comprehensive um, overview of the social media age. And that question is: so, what are you going to do next? Then <laughs> are you going to work more on social media? I mean, that there are you know several different research agendas um, that I spotted that could easily develop from the book. You, you mentioned actually, you know, your own uh, separate research projects that have underpinned. Um, some of the uh, chapters and, and case studies. So, yeah, what what kind of things are you going to be working on um, after the social media age? Uh, what a what a wonderful question. So, um, the, uh, there's there's so many ways to to answer this. And and thanks so much for you know reading the book and um and for these questions. Um, so the the two projects I have you know on the go at the moment. There's one on data epistemologies, and this does uh, carry on from some of the themes um, within the book. And the project aims to look at the different tools, you know, from social network analysis to sentiment analysis um, to web scraping, uh, to look at the, these different tools and what kinds of knowledges they bring, you know, what are the lenses they bring to make sense of different web and social media contexts. And so what I'd like to do is compare them uh, with the aim to understand what those epistemologies are um, and how they work together. Because I think this is the other question we have is there's so much change um, and so many emerging tools. And uh, uh, I think that this would be a very interesting way to make sense of, um, you know, how to make sense of how to make sense of our changing digital world. Um, so that's one project. Another one is uh, I'm, I'm working with Harry Dyer, Mark Kerrigan, and Hugh Davies on looking at digital inequalities in education. Um, and that's a well-established area. As you know yourself, your your own work on um, inequalities in the cultural industries, uh, uh, you know, we're we we're looking to that as well. But um, yeah, that is another project. And then, of course, there's two, which I'm absolutely desperate to do, but will probably not be until next year. And that's looking at um, social credit users, you know, particularly Chinese social credit users and trying to understand their experience um, and how they make sense of um, not just surveillance, but also perhaps uh, cultural belonging um, and how it is that these apps make sense of that. And there's also a project on um, digital dating, <laughs> but uh, which I'm very keen to do at some point in the future. So those are those are my projects um, on the go. Can I ask uh, you the same question, Dave? What are you looking to do next? Um, I mean, it's, it's funny because obviously it's uh, your podcast that, about your book, but but actually, uh, you know, lots of quite quite similar things, and, and particularly um, thinking about the impact of of the pandemic on things like digital cultural consumption and, and this question about, you know, um, is it the case that arts organisations should all now massively pivot to digital um, or actually is it the case that, you know, the moment of kind of digital engagement that we saw mid-2020 um, is a bit like the kind of Facebook's vid- pivot to video scandal, you, you know, it was a sort of a bit um of a, of a kind of false dawn um and you know are people quite bored of the digital now um you know happy to sort of engage with particular platforms like tiktok facebook um twitter youtube and instagram but really craving a return to a you know a kind of 
um, digitally assisted in terms of connections, but maybe, you know, kind of not digitally mediated world. And um, we, we shall see what happens over the next kind of year or so. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think that I, I don't know if you have explored Clubhouse at all, but Clubhouse is an audio um, based, you know, social media app only available to Apple users. And, and my view is that it's actually really got, you know, potential to, to become quite successful precisely because of the pandemic moment and the visual exhaustion of so many of the sorts of work-based um, and social technologies that we're using. So, yeah, interesting, interesting question. I, um, it sounds fascinating. Yeah, and look forward to, uh, to, to seeing more of your, uh, your work, particularly, um, I think I mentioned, you know, several of those um, later book chapters uh, could certainly have, you know, research projects and books um, on their own. So you've, you've got uh, quite a bit of work to do by the sounds of it. <laughs> yes, thank you. And I, I would like to, to see that happen as well. Um, so, yeah. Thanks so much, Dave. Really a pleasure to, to speak to you about the book and um, uh, all, you know, everything that's within it. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time and being on the podcast. So hello to everyone out there and thank you for listening. <laughs>